Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome all, very intimate strangers, sorry, a restaurant, um, to this IES Sprue Rising Fringe event, the title of which is, I'm going to read off the sheet, I don't get it wrong, Future of Food, Burgers, or Bugs. My name is Tom Clark, I'm the science editor with Channel 2 News. Uh, before we start, I'm going to declare a slight interest here. I was an entomologist in former life, so I studied bugs. But I'm not the expert here, these guys are, and I'll introduce them in a second. Um, the purpose of tonight's event is to explore what we eat and what that has on the environment. When we choose to eat what goes into producing, how far it's travelled to get to us, how much it can throw away at the end, is a major burden on the planet's resources. There are other burdens on the planet's resources like climate change and population growth. So we thought it would be a good time to sit down and discuss what the future of food is. We have a hashtag for tonight's event, which is future of food. You might use that when you're tweeting. Um, I hope it's going to be stimulating for your minds, but also for your taste buds, because at the end we have got some stuff for your uh, at this stage, more of that later. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce our speakers. I'm going to do that in the order in which they're going to speak. First of all, we have Dominic Glover, who is a researcher at the Institute for Studies, and he specializes in the study of technology and processes associated with technical change. Most recently, he's been looking at Then with Professor Eric Milstone, and he's my right, Professor of Science Policy, um, in the science policy research in the University of Sussex. Um, and he has been researching the causes and consequences of scientific and technical change in food and agriculture for quite a long time. And because we're talking tonight about novel foods, that raises some important questions about safety and suitability. Um, uh, we're also joined by Vera Zafron, she is the project coordinator for Love Food in Waste Partnership. Um, in, sorry, she is the coordinator for the Love Food Waste Project um, in the Brighton Hope Food Partnership. And she works for some of the community groups to tackle food waste uh, communities and in businesses. And last but by no means least, we have Dan Stott, uh, who doesn't just, he hasn't studied insects so much, he actually sells them to us as food. Dan is, sorry Dan, I'm just forgetting the name, but um, yeah, he works for, he is the co-founder of Bug Voice, he's going to tell us more about that. Yeah. So the format for sitting up, I'm going to have, we have five minutes from each of our speakers to lay out their thoughts on that, and then almost straight away we'll open it up to you. Oh, can you not hear me? Can everybody hear me? Are you okay? Oh, no. Right. Louder. That's a good one. Lydia, I think it wasn't projecting enough. I'm going to tell you, Joe, this time. I'm not an actor. How's that? Is that better? Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Um, do I need to go through all that again? No. Good. Okay, we've got, we've got the gist of it. Um, so, um, as we say, the format for this evening, we'll have uh, five minutes from each other's speakers, then we're going to open up to you guys. So, we want to make it as participatory as possible and deal with as many of your questions, passions, problems as we can. Um, so, without further ado, I'm going to hand the mic to Dominic Club. I hope this reflects his moment. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Um, my name is Dominic Glover. I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies, and we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year, so um, it's a great pleasure to be here talking to you. Thank you very much for coming. So my credentials for talking to you this evening, they're very, very slight, actually. Um, I have run one small project which has been exploring the potential of uh, edible insects to contribute to global food security in the future. But for me, you know, I'm not here to promote edible insects. I simply think it's a really interesting topic of uh, food system sustainability and the way food systems change over time, the way uh, production and consumption patterns change over time. Um, uh, I'm a social scientist, I'm not a, a technical specialist, um, so I'm definitely not the uh, top expert in the room on uh, insects, as we've just heard. <laughs> anyway, okay, so I thought I might start with a little bit of um, audience participation. So could we just have a quick show of hands, anybody in the room who has knowingly eaten insects? Okay, quite a few. Okay, so the gentleman in the white t-shirt then, what have you eaten? What was the occasion? Okay, Anna. How was the experience? Would you do it again? What, what was the bug that you ate? Show of hands again. Who, who else can I keep on? Yeah, gentleman with the beard. Um, I am a teacher and had to eat some in assembly. Okay, that's really interesting that, um, yeah, Thailand is just a, you can buy from a food store. With the school in the UK, it's, uh, it's a dare. So that's fine. <laughs> okay, so are there any uh, vegetarians in the room? Okay, uh, keep your hands up, please. Are there any vegans in the room? Okay, I'm quite surprised. Um, so among the, among the vegetarians, you were a vegetarian, I believe? If I may ask, what's the reason for your vegetarianism? Has it got anything to do with animal welfare, or is it to do with animal welfare? So you're, you're avoiding meat because of welfare. So that's an interesting one. Uh, I didn't spot any hands up for vegans. Are there any vegans? Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and you were avoiding animal products for welfare reasons, or for some reason? Okay. And help them. Okay. How do you feel about the welfare of insects? I'm going to rush on because I only have five minutes, but uh, this is really interesting stuff. Is there anyone in the room who has a food allergy? Okay. Yes. Gentleman with blue t-shirt. Soya. Okay. Anyone with a seafood allergy by any chance? Shrimps. Okay. So, well, one thing you might like to know is that crickets, for example, in evolutionary terms, are closely related to shrimps. And sometimes people refer to crickets as land shrimps. And you know, whereas there are cultures like the UK where eating an insect is a dare, there are cultures around the world where they come to Europe, for example, and they see it peeling the shells and legs and antennae and heads of shrimps. And they find it really 
truth. So if you're jumping on some insects later on, just bear in mind that there is a crossover between seafood allergy and insect allergy. It's not a one-to-one -one thing, but just bear it in mind. Okay. Are there any meat eaters in the room who try to limit their meat consumption? Ooh. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, who can I talk to? Uh, the lady in the white top. Why is that? Why do you try to limit your meat consumption? Okay. Basically, for health reasons. Has it got anything to do with uh, environmental sustainability or? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And um, why does that concern you? Anyone else uh, who put their hand up just now share that point of view? Mm -hmm. Should I show a fancy? Yeah, I can't afford to eat the quality of the Yeah, it's the quality of the meat. It's become very, very cheap over time. Okay, good. I'm going to have to gallop on. I could carry on with this phase. Um, okay, is there anyone in the room who's concerned that they don't get enough protein in their diet? That's interesting. Uh, maybe in the check shirt. Is there a particular reason for that? Is there? Um, okay. Thank you. That's it, that's a really interesting one because actually the daily recommended intake for protein is really just a few grams and by and large protein malnutrition on its own is a very rare occurrence by and large if people are getting enough calories they're generally getting enough protein so of course we're here today to talk about among other things edible insects as an alternative protein source but i want to propose that actually it's not that we're running short of protein but it's actually about the composition of our diet and where we get our protein to okay thank you Trying to be extra here. <laughs> I'm probably going away. Yeah. I, I didn't. Basically, there are some. There are lots of arguments for taking uh, insect eating seriously. They're not my arguments. I'm just telling you what they are. Okay. So, first of all, people already eat insects in places like Vietnam, Thailand, and in sub-Saharan Africa. People eat insects all the time. It's, rather weird in Western culture to eat insects, and yet there are diaspora communities over here that eat edible insects. Uh, it's argued that they're healthy and nutritious, so they consist of um, some healthy meat, some fat, and some trace elements. And that it's more sustainable. Okay, this is the, this is the key set of arguments. Um, because insects are cold-blooded, they don't burn a lot of energy, so their conversion ratio of the food, the feed that they eat, converted to edible meat that we can eat is much better, especially for beef, but it's even better by most analyses than something like chickens. So uh, if you want to convert feedstocks into edible meat, then insects are possibly a more sustainable option. Although, like any other livestock, it does depend on what you're feeding them on. And another argument is that you can process waste, inedible waste, stuff that we couldn't eat, could be converted into stuff that we can eat. So agricultural waste or food waste. Um, they don't produce so many greenhouse gas emissions. And you can use less land and less water. And 
We already are being used as feed for conventional livestock. So if we are going to eat meat, we can feed them on insects, and that might be better than feeding them grain, for example. So these are some of the arguments why, but we'll hear more about that, I guess, for Daniel. Sorry about the squeeze on time, but we will hopefully come back to some of the other points in the discussion afterwards. Now it's um, Professor Eric Monster from uh, Spruill with your thoughts on it. Thanks very much indeed. Until about 20 minutes ago, I was under the impression that I was going to have 10 minutes to speak. <laughs> and then it's fine. Consequently, I'm going to have to abbreviate what I have to say, had in mind to say, and speak more quickly than I'd envisaged. So, the central argument that I want to advance this afternoon is that while there are lots and lots of problems with food and agriculture in our world, hardly any of those problems are problems which can be solved simply by introducing new technology technological change. Most of the problems with our food system are social, economic, and political. And let me just illustrate this with a few examples. Now, many people assume that the central problem of chronic hunger and undernutrition, malnutrition, in poor countries around the world is because there isn't enough food to go around and the solution therefore must be a technological one of producing more food. Now, as you can find in this splendid book that I claim to have edited, copies will be available for sale. <laughs> at the end, uh, no, 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 you've got at less than half of um, Amazon's price. Um, in fact, the simple fact is more than enough food is produced in the world annually, and if it was equitably distributed, people would not go around people. There's chronic hunger because people starve because they're poor, because they can't afford um, to buy food. So the problem of hunger is a problem of poverty. And technological innovations can often make problems worse rather than better. Let me give a few slightly different examples. One, the main problem uh, in relation to diet-related diet health in the industrialized countries nowadays is not undernutrition, but overnutrition. It's obesity. And the technological solutions being offered by corporations are, well, we can give, instead of, you know, people get too many calories from sugars and fats, so the solution is synthetic sweeteners and artificial fats. But they're all problematic. Let me give you a few examples. Well, firstly, in terms of chemical safety, I wouldn't give um, unreserved endorsement to any artificial sweeteners. But putting that aside for a minute, couple of different considerations. Firstly, as the consumption of artificial sweeteners has risen sharply, there has been no corresponding decline in sugar consumption. In practice, in aggregate, artificial sweeteners are not substituting for sugars, they're merely supplementing it. So getting people eating more artificial sweeteners is not reducing calorie intake. More bizarrely, artificial sweeteners were most certainly appetite stimulants. The mechanism seems to go somewhere like this. When we have a sweet taste, our body is accustomed to expecting calories from sugars. But when the calories don't arrive, like a diet soft drink, more than that, 20 minutes later, you feel hungry. You go on a calorie out. And you engage in what the nutritionist called um, caloric compensation. And in practice, the evidence is that people using a lot of artificial sweetness are actually typically gaining weight, not losing weight. Now, another technological solution, uh, 
to a beastly list. Oh, okay. Well, there's a lot of calories in fat. So let's go for fat substitutes that don't deliver calories. And the most notorious of this was a product uh, produced by Procter and Gamble, which goes uh, commercially by the name of Alestra. And you could use it to fry potatoes, for instance, or you know, make a margarine product. And if you consume it, you get no calories. However, that doesn't mean it's innocuous. Uh, firstly, because you don't digest it, it leaches out of the body essential fat-soluble nutrients without which we can't survive. Things like vitamin E. So the companies have said, all right, we'll sell it and sell it with supplemented vitamin E. But that still doesn't solve the problem. And anyway, because it's an oil, it's a liquid at room temperature, but you don't digest it, it essentially, and I hope this doesn't really wrap up for dinner, it essentially lubricates the bowel. And of course, the manufacturers have got this obscure expression, they say, oh, its use is self-limited. Meaning, people will stop using it when they finally suffer from a condition. <laughs> the, polite, the polite expression is able leakage. <laughs> More than that, I, I don't need to and, and so that's undesirable, but actually I think it's quite frightening for people suffering. So, what's the name for the condition where people desperately try and lose weight? And, oh, Anorexia, thank you. Yeah, anorexia. Anorexia. It's, it's going to be a huge problem for anorexics. But they're terrific. I keep taking more and more of it and lose more and more weight. And I think the impact will be appalling. So, in fact, it's never been lawfully permitted in this country. One more minute, so let me give you another example. In the 80s, there was an enormous amount of enthusiasm for the food industry for irradiating food. After all, we've got loads of spare radioactive materials sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> and radiation kills bacteria, so it's radiated food. But it turns out that the only food on which it's appropriate to use irradiation will be food that's already gone off. So, as my dear friend and technical Tim Lang would say, only bad food needs irradiation. So, if, if I guess the phrase they use is they want to. Restoration, like the antique business, do with old, old bits of furniture to make them reusable. No, we should be eating healthy, safe food, not food that's gone off and has then been sapped with radiation to make it barely tolerable. No, most of the problems regarding our food system are not technological, they're social, economic, and uh, and, and now, um, over to you. I'm hoping the lead stretches that far. I think Dan, it's your turn with the swap seats. <laughs> My voice can't reach as well. It can be quite loud. Um, hi, hello. Thank you so much for coming down. Um, I am not. I love insects, both as little critters uh, when they're alive, and unfortunately to say, I do sometimes love eating them too. Um, but I don't, um, before, I, I suppose, um, what I wanted to talk about is the thing that perhaps we really need to consider before we consider alternative technologies in food. I would be really interested in seeing uh, insects as sort of part of our varied diet. Um, but the thing I wanted to talk about was, well, food waste is something, let's, let's think on that, uh, chew on that for a little bit. Um, and so what I focused on was, uh, uh, in terms of meat waste, 
in the UK. Um, and I do apologize, the, uh, sorry, I brought a few little facts and figures here for you guys, but they are a little old. They're from 2012 and 11. So perhaps the picture's a little different now, but it still is a major issue. Um, so first of all, um, here in the UK, we waste 243,000 tons of uh, red meats and poultry every year, and that includes processed meat as well. That maybe doesn't sound like a lot, so I'm going to break it down into digestible portions, if you will. By the way, a portion of meat is about uh, 70 grams. So that equates to 3,471,428,571 portions of meat every single year. That's just what we're wasting from our households, by the way. So that comes out to about 55 portions per person, um, and that's about one per week. Now, we're not going to think about like vegetarians and people who are yeah, very much limiting their meat consumption. This is the average per person. So obviously some people are throwing away more, some people are throwing away none at all. So um, uh, the other on the other side of it is actually what we are eating. And we are eating way more meat-based protein than the health authorities would like us to. So um, the average meat consumption per person per week is around 700 and, uh, 789 grams, which comes out to about 11 portions a week. Um, the health guidelines recommend no more than seven portions. So it's about like maybe one filet of chicken, one portion of meat a day. Um, obviously you can have you know some eggs, you can have some beans, you, know, you can mix it up, but you know, try not to eat more than uh, 70 grams of red meat a day. Um, so I, I was also kind of thinking a little bit more, you know, what would the ideal picture look like? And I spoke to my nutritionist colleagues um, at the Food Partnership, and we kind of came up with this sort of what they recommend when people press this for what's my weekly diet going to look like. And so we came up with three portions of meat in a week, two meat-free days, and two uh, days where your portion is a fish, one of them being an oily fish. So that's something health authorities do recommend for the omegas. Um, so, thinking about that, I know it's a lot of math, sorry. So, if three portions of red meat are ideal, but we are consuming way more than that. Um, so, thinking about the one portion we waste and the 11 portions that we eat, so it's about 12, um, we really should be consuming only three. So, we're actually consuming and wasting three times as much as we should be eating. So, here in the UK, we produce three times more meat than we need. So. Um, I was thinking, wow, that's a lot of lamb we're using. So I went to um, check out this report. It's called Zero Carbon Britain. Um, it was put together by the Center for Alternative Technology. I absolutely love it. Definitely look it up. And incidentally, and I printed it out because it's really cool, they crunched massive amounts of numbers. And they came up with, well, you can take a look at this later, but this is like a picture of how we're using our UK land right now, uh, both for um, and food production, uh, livestock, and for fuels. And this is what it should look like, and that includes actually uh, environmental restoration, let it, let leaving some land just to be forest. And incidentally, they too want to get us to cut down our meat and dairy consumption by two thirds. So I kind of forgot about this fact, but I came to the same conclusion. So there must be something in it. I'm totally going to run out of time. The other two things I wanted to say, just so kind of for you guys to think about in terms of questions, is um, is global food waste. Um, I'll, I'll give you, I'll tell you a story actually. Um, Kenyan bean farmers they grow a lot of beans for the UK market. About a third of their crop is rejected between the farm and the pack house. 
So it never even leaves the country, a third of what they grow. And um, all in all, uh, even more is rejected before it comes to UK um, supermarkets and to us. That's a total of 45% of all the beans that are grown for our consumption are thrown away. That's a lot, and uh, you can make some uh, connections there. Um, but here's an example of what happens when there is policy change and when you know retailers actually make changes. Um, when Tesco was urged by the campaigning organization Feedback to stop tailing their beans, to stop kind of uh, they, they use those little like packets where all the beans are the same size, but in reality beans are different sizes when they grow on the plant. So when they stopped tailing their beans, it meant that there was a 30% reduction in farm level food waste, which meant that the average Kenyan farm was saving about 78,000 um, euros a year. Um, and so what some of the farmers were saying is that sometimes we don't have enough to pay our workers. Our workers are the ones who then can't afford to feed their families properly, can't afford to send their children to school. So when we talk about this, we are actually talking about global global poverty, um, is that our consumption habits do affect it. So food waste is a major thing. How much time do I have? None. Tell me. Just 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> one, more, one, more, one more point to make it quick. Okay, cool. Um, the last thing I'm just going to say is that, um, what do I want to focus on? Um, is that we have the other big issue is, the, is that we've lost the cycle of harvest feasts and hunger gaps. And this is really important, is that what this idea of eating meat every day, of eating them, what we know have a very Mediterranean diet, we've kind of lost our British diet, we're now obsessed with aubergines, tomatoes. It means that we're importing more, it also means that we're using greenhouses a lot more. So there is really something about the hungry gap, it's this time when you're not eating that much, but you're thinking about the feast that's coming up ahead. This idea of the Sunday roast I think is really beautiful. You know you kind of wait for your big meat feast on Sunday, and the leftovers from that roast mean two other portions of meat that you can enjoy that week. So hey, that's your three portions for the week, and you're still having a fantastic and varied diet. And I will end on that. Hello people, thanks for coming down tonight. Um, so I'm Dan, I'm from Book Boys. Uh, we're an edible insect company based here in uh, Brighton. Um, we've been doing this for the past year and a half and uh, we've been trying to figure out who wants to eat insects and how we can introduce it to uh, the Western world. Uh, so what we've been doing at the moment is we've imported um, cricket powder or flour as you may know it as and we've basically shown to people and presented to people and see how they interact with it and what we found is that as a, a product on by the power of flour itself is a, a struggle for people like you to incorporate into your diet because it's a new ingredient and it's a struggle to get into it. So what we found is that this summer we're planning on uh, introducing it into uh, ready to eat and drink products which we'll be doing soon. So one of the things I want to talk to you about with insects is the uh, health benefits. So obviously there's the protein side of it which is excellent and this varies between whole insects and dried insects so typically in a dried insect of a cricket you find about 40 grams of protein but when you dry that down to a powder you get 60 to 70 grams but that's not the only benefit benefit and we've also got in there high amounts of iron so more iron per gram than beef uh, we've also got calcium in there uh, we've got amigas in there um, also, there's high amounts of vitamin B12. Um, we've also got prebiotic fiber, 
from the chitin in there. There's lots of benefits, lots of different minerals and uh, vitamins in there. Um, so one of the things I want to ask you guys is what interests you the most in eating insects? What are the reasons? Has anyone got any thoughts on that? Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Um, so one of the facts I've got for you today is that the family of four were to replace one of their meals a week instead of meat and replacing with insects, they could save over a year six hundred and fifty thousand meters of water. So it could potentially have a big, a big impact. Um, one of the things we want to try to do is also make it healthy as well. Um, so that's what we've been a bit slow with because we were quite perfectionist and we want to make it healthy ingredient as well as sustainable ingredient. Um, because we found that with companies already there, like what Eric was saying about the sugar thing, they're part of which combining with dates. And uh, initially we might do this, but we want to try to steer away from that and have a low sugar, high protein bar or drink. Um, one of the real developments of making it actually sustainable, and it's what we're working on at the moment at the field project on Lewis Road, is uh, the farming side of it. So at the moment, around uh, the world, it's farmed very traditionally like the wood in Thailand, just in open air boxes, and then it'd be quite manual labourers uh, from people having to pick them up and move them, and then grind them down for powder. So what we were trying to develop there is is a more automated system so it becomes more affordable because that's another problem we have at the moment. It's quite high end, high market product. And for people, for it to be a mass consumer market and allow people to be more sustainable, we need to make it more affordable. So that's one of the key elements we need to tackle first. Also, there's the, the safety around it. Um, recently, the EU has put the novel foods regulation around it. Um, so soon we'll all have to adhere to these rules. Um, there's talk about uh, feeding insects on waste. Um, this is still early days at the moment and it's not being done for the food side of things at the moment because of the, the risk around the, the heavy metals coming through in the insects. So at the moment feeding on conventional things like chicken feed um, and sort of loose like wasted veg at the moment. Um, another aspect would be that the, the feed side of things is not the best aspect of the sustainability side of things. It's more looking at the, the water and the land. Um, you need 2,000 times less water than a, uh, to raise the amount of same amount of protein in beef, which is pretty significant and it's also higher than better for chicken than chickens as well. Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm I've got I think I've oh. just about done it. That's about it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
you've seen how long the microphone cable is, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to get to all of you. So possibly, if I can take questions from you guys, and I will then relay them to the rest of the room. Uh, so, based on what we've just heard, has anyone got any burning questions? Anyone to get out there already? That's great. You, sir. I think I can reach you. I want to know what is the incentive? It seems it comes down to hearts and minds. But people that want to move, they now want to offer them an alternative. So we're looking at like, what is the incentive to not push vegetarianism? Why are we pushing eating another livestock over vegetarianism? Because surely we're still producing feed for these insects. Would it not just save everything if we just took the meat eating out of the equation and promote the vegetarianism? Right, vegetarianism there. Madam, you at the back, you had a question. While we talk about replacing yeah. one food, we're already getting enough protein, why you need another source of one. I think there's some positive good thoughts on that. And I'll take one more. There's a lady at the very back. Who are okay, I'm actually looking over your shoulder at the lady in the red chair shirt. But she's even further away, so I'm not sure how we're going to get your question. Where we end up with factory farms for this and all. Right, I think that's enough to go on now. So, one of the vegetarianism, one of the need alternative, and the issue of, I suppose, just to catch it all in, why are we talking about replacing uh, all the overabundant supplies of protein with another source? And I do, as we go on, I think we'll deflect you on more broadly away from insects. I know we're, we're talking about the future of food in general here, which is insects and that are more interesting. Um, thanks for those questions. Um, I want to reiterate that I'm not here to promote edible insects. Um, in terms of you know people's food choices, if you want to be vegetarian or vegan or whatever, I mean personally, I think that people should have the right and the freedom and the ability to make these decisions for themselves. Um, as a social scientist who studies agriculture. Um, my uh, knowledge of agriculture is expanding all the time, but the most sustainable agricultural systems I'm aware of are ones where you're actually recycling nutrients all the time, from animals into plants and from plants back into animals. And there are also things that you can do with livestock, including insects, but also you know, uh, large animals, um, where you can, as I said, take inedible material and bring it into the human food chain. So, for example, if you're eating grass-fed beef, that's a very different um, kettle of fish from very different proposition um, compared to eating uh, beef that's fed on grain, that's grown in the Amazon basin and transported across thousands of miles of the ocean. So um, I would say, in terms of like, you know, I, I suspect that people will make their own decisions. And if uh, companies like Dan's start to put edible insects on the market, it will come down to a question of whether people choose them. And that will be down to whether they find them tasty, succulent, um, aromatic, how they're, how they're presented, how they're packaged, how they're marketed, the kind of information that goes along with them, whether it is part of a food culture that they want to belong to. And so these products may or may not survive in, in the market, and I think that's the best answer I can give to that. Yeah, we would end up with industrially farmed insects, but I think the, 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 
the technical analysts would say that it still wouldn't have the same footprint in terms of land. Um, but one interesting thing which has just been alluded to very briefly is that uh, in places like Thailand, you can rear insects out in the open or harvest them in the wild. If you're growing tropical insect species for food in temperate climates, then you do need to have them indoors in a heated premises. So you are putting some energy inputs in to keep the insects warm and keep them alive. Yeah, so um, sort of just on the temperate climate and heat at the moment, it's obviously not as sustainable as it could be at the moment, and obviously it's more sustainable to farm in other countries, but then you've got to import them to the UK. Um, but with most new things, they are very inefficient, and with time they get more efficient. So it's more trying to include insects into the food cycle and to use uh, eventually waste as a the connecting chain, the processing of the waste and then feeding it back to the humans. That's sort of the most exciting thing I think will be useful for them. If I, if I may um, briefly make this point, the idea of recycling nutrients, turning waste into something nutritious, all sounds splendid, but it can go wrong. And the obvious example is BSE mad cow disease. Um, The origin of BSE was almost certainly a consequence of taking animal waste and rendering it into, well it was oil on one hand and, and, and what's called meat and bone meal, which uh, is the dry residue of the rendering process, which was then fed to cattle. Now, cattle are naturally vegetarians. We recycle um, livestock waste into cattle and Doing that, but also a change in the rendering process resulted in the survival of the pathogen, which was then caused the BSE side the crisis, which I think was the biggest crisis, the biggest failure in public policy between the failed invasion of Suez in 1956 and the failed invasion of Iraq <laughs> in, in, in this century, which ended up costing the government alone 20 billion pounds. So, let, let alone the losses of the farming industry. So while recycling nutrients makes lots of sense, we have to be sure that we're doing it safely. I'm just, before I take that question, I'm going to just interject with a thought here. It seems to me, um, Eric, as though you're a skeptic, in a way, about a <laughs> technological approach to solving our food woes. And although what we're talking here about eating insects is not entirely technological, it's about a cultural shift as well. They could be a very good alternative protein source. If that's the case, where do you see the biggest potential for change? If it isn't in problems, technological problems, which what corporations do very well, and engineers do very well, and agronomists do very well, where does this come? Only the difficult questions. <laughs> well, somebody was saying, would we be better off with a vegetarian diet? And I certainly think that, as you were saying, um, people are overeating protein, they're wasting protein, they're overeating calories. We could have much healthier diets on a much uh, lower um, protein and calorie level. I, I'm sure you're correct that getting our protein from insects 
would be much more efficient in terms of water, land, and energy. Certainly the beef cattle, which is outrageously inefficient and, and wasteful. Um, and huge amounts of land is devoted to growing feed for, for beef cattle, which could be used to feed people. So firstly, if you ask me how we solve hunger in developing countries, the answer is by solving poverty. If we're asking the question of how we solve problems in the industrialized world, which include things like obesity, bacteriological food poisoning, um, toxicity from pesticides and additives and contaminants, it is by not allowing the system to be driven by the food corporations and putting consumer protection first. I'm not going to argue with that. Small questions, please. Yeah, yes, sir. Hi. Uh, so I'm not sure if it's a question, it's more of an observation, but I've been really interested in the term entomology. Entomology. But I spelled it right on my Google Alerts. Yeah. So every Wednesday I get an email from around the world of where this word's being picked up. And I've probably been about six months now. And for me, I've just been this, I'm really interested in it, but I've been disappointed with the PR around it because each week I get an email, maybe one from Sydney, one from California, a few from Copenhagen, that is it's for basic audience, you know, the, the people that open these articles, be it in blogs or discussions and posts or whatever, is that they just say the same thing. And they never say anything interesting. They talk on a little bit about nutrition, they talk on a little bit about sustainability, but it's never anything that's actually, no one's really taken by the scrub the neck and actually put it into a product, maybe you guys are, and actually making it, putting it on the shelf, and actually making it edible. Now I see a product like Naked Bars, which maybe is controversial to make an analogy because they're a vegan product, and obviously this wouldn't be. But some of the questions of market products can put it down, and we can try it in our own, you know, clearly there's a captive audience here, and I know this was sold out, so it's that side. You know, like, we, we just need to try it. Uh, and in, in our own time and space, and it just doesn't exist. You should probably stop talking now before Dan offers you a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a couple more before we go to the panel. Yes, sir, you're the back. Um, quite an avid meat eater, like try and eat free range and local when possible. One thing that doesn't seem to come up that much is do we have free range insects? I've seen a documentary where I know that sounds ridiculous, but I saw a documentary they're producing uh, maggots for fishing and it was just as grim as say factory uh, chickens and I wonder whether it's just replacing pushing away from things that we can stroke in the warm blood you know a bit similar to us yeah. but into creeping corners that you don't mind you know living in their own fields I think we're getting back to that same question whether insects have feelings or soul yeah. oh, I want to discuss that at some point. One more question. Oh, there's loads coming up now. Uh, yes, I'll come back to you. Uh, you, sir, there we go, teacher. Um, I was really just asked the question of uh, you were saying when you try and grind the bugs, whatever type it might be, you gain more protein than they, when you ate it with an unprocessed thing. How did you make something like that? It's basically you're extracting the water out of it um, and you concentrate I will take one more since that was dealt with instantly by Dan. Yes, sir. Just 
drawing these flows and drawing together. You're not getting more protein than switch process and so that's the second time you start. You're just getting more protein per weight and putting energy in just to enable something that might be more desirable to consumers. It's also something that worries me that when <laughs> with the process of trying to bring these folks to market, it's going to go down the road to try to achieve economies of scale. And that eventually may take precedence over the actual more kind of environmental approach to trying to keep things whole. Would it not be better to try to educate people on how to produce their own food, on how to be more aware of what they're eating, and to go back to eating less and eating better quality meat so we're going to come back to you two gentlemen in a second, but we're going to, I think Dan should deal with those first. Um, firstly, on why we don't have more insect products on the market that actually we want to buy, but also think the technical process about whether we're just going to end up with a grisly factory farm in the center system, it's got its problems too. So yeah, in terms of the media, um, they're not really doing as much of a favor, because um, it's sort of still promote it's like a push doctor trial sort of thing and and then there's also companies selling like whole insects as well which is we know less people willing to try whole insects rather than powders itself because um, in america at the moment exo and chipotle are selling uh, the, the protein bars with uh, the cricket powder in there and just well they're selling all over from all the us now um we're just a bit behind at the moment obviously because we have more regulations on America, so that's a problem. So people are a bit apprehensive in terms of going forward and investing lots of money into this. Um, but now with the novel food regulation, hopefully sort of more products will come to market because everyone knows what the, the playing field is. So give it a bit, another year or so, I think it's, things will start popping up more. Um, and in terms of the farming stuff, so what exactly was it, sorry? Yeah, there is that. Um, there's obviously definitely that. Uh, there's, there's not, well, there is free range insects, but you run the risk of eating something potentially that's not good for you, just eating maybe something toxic. Um, but yeah, there are, obviously with this, they are going to have to be farmed in big industrial units on the economies of scale to make it affordable. Um, that's how it is. Really. I'm not, I can't really say, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you as they were. Or the running on fields or anything like that. <laughs> but one of the facts, one thing I will say, we've actually been farming insects in the UK uh, like that for the past 35 years for reptiles. Um, but you've never seen these things, you don't go visit these farms. Um, and also, in terms of your comments there, definitely um, one of the biggest problems in the UK at the moment is the food education. Um, that results in more food waste, but like we don't know how to use food, uh, generations are not being passed down how to use food. Um, quality of food can go going up and start going down in both aspects. Um, but yeah, definitely education on food is the first point in which we do. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd like to add to um, a, touch on a, a previous discussion around actually uh, raising pigs, but also about uh, quality. So quality over quantity, I think, is really important. Um, just that really quickly, uh, the history of, you know, I'm not like kind of pro or against, I, I love pigs, they're so intelligent, uh, and I do sometimes. No, I am not eating them this year. But um, yeah, so rearing pigs actually has kind of developed because, um, or so they say, some scientists, that um, they're really efficient at processing waste at the sort of local community level. Um, and it was, it, it, and we often, it's, for me, it's kind of a bit challenging because I do believe that as many of us as possible should limit our meat intake as much as possible. And those who have the desire to go vegetarian, I mean, anybody can go vegetarian and have a fantastically healthy diet. We have to admit to ourselves that we eat meat because we love the taste. You can get just about any of your nutrients from non-meat sources. But the fact is we love it and it connects us culturally. And so this is where I wanted to come back to this um, quality is that we have a history and a tradition of eating meat. And I think it's, sometimes it's in looking back to that history that some of these answers lie. I think variety and new horizons are really important. I think it's exciting. But this isn't, you know, I do kind of feel like at the moment it's, it's a bit of a, you know, maybe a bit of a kind of privileged solution. You know, it's not going to be for everybody. Um, but there's something about the reverence that we give to food when we know where it comes from, when we know it's not something we eat every day. Like bacon every morning, you know, you, you kind of you start getting robotic about it, and so you're not thinking about the pig and its welfare. But something that happens rarely on occasion is again going back to that idea of celebration, um, and the idea of also I think preservation. So you know, if you don't have something all year round, you're you put more time into saving it, into bringing it out, into enjoying it. And I think some of the some of the things that are around there. So I would love to see in a future of UK food bringing back some of the British traditions, making sure they don't die out. Actually, I would love to see more young people going into traditional food production that is based on preservation, that is based on things like fermentation. You know, these this is something we kind of need more of because we need to be thinking about the bounty of the autumn when we don't have it in the spring. Um, and so, I, again, I kind of wonder where that sort of, it's not taking the meat out, but it's really placing it on that kind of, you know, the place of reverence in our kitchen that I suppose it deserves, if we're going to eat it. And that's, I, sure. I'll try and be as quick as possible, but I just wanted to make the point that there are actually already quite a few uh, edible insect products out there. They're available online, uh, certainly in the United States, it's quite well developed. They're already available in some Dutch and Belgian and French supermarkets. Uh, they were briefly on the shelves in Danish supermarkets and then they, uh, they have got cold feet slightly, but I'm not quite sure where that stands. But there's an Austrian company that's just about to launch a domestic kitchen tabletop uh, incubation units where you can produce your own mealworms and produce protein sufficient for, for a couple of meals a week in your own kitchen by feeding them on kitchen scraps. So this is really actually happening. But the hype, I agree with you about the hype, the, the hype reflects the fact that this is a fledgling industry. We can't tell actually whether it will go anywhere. Maybe in five years time this will all be just forgotten about. But it, it could take off. It seems like it needs something like BBC or Channel 4, Bruce Harry or whoever it is to do something interesting with it, not just to have a product and actually increase the 
talk to tribal people, you know, yeah. grassroots. Yeah. Ideally, what we need to do is get chefs using it, because then if they should show people how to use it, then they can make it work I'm going to try to grab him and write him soon. <laughs> 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 yeah, but hold our thoughts and we're going to try something to take Sorry to rush words because I just want to do another round of questions. I know they're queuing up here. The lady in the back has been waiting for a long time. You sir as well. You guys get off the Right. I might try and theme them slightly. Madam, if you can. Yeah, okay, briefly. Convention Okay, how do you use the nice insect? I'm sorry, I'm going to keep it quick. Uh, so you would think an appropriate way to uh, Oh, you said, yeah. First two in the front. Uh, I was just going to say, do you see a future where uh, eating uh, insects is a sort of common and just continuously eating the state of the Brilliant. Future. Uh, you, sir, at the back of your thing, Quite early days, it's been very comparable to existing meat proteins. 
Um, but it's also very dependent on what you feed them as well. So there's research that won't be done on the amino acid profiles of insects depending on what feed has been given. Um, and it, it's also about optimizing the feed as well, like we do with chickens and beef variety. So. serious than just sort of sticking a finger in your mouth and holding it up. Um, so we came up with four different scenarios and what was interesting about those was that insects were plausible food source in all four. There wasn't a scenario that we came up with where we thought actually it was just eating a So it's a real possibility and of course copies of the monastery. Can I say something about insects? Everybody is eating insects on a regular basis. Because, as you can imagine, for lots of fruit and vegetables, uh, during processing and harvesting, insects get caught up in the process, and there are EU standards and threshold levels for allowable quantities of, of insect parts in the food. And attractively, the technical term for this stuff is called insect filth. <laughs> <laughs> and you eat insect filth all the time. It's just a fact. Well, what should we look out for the label when it comes to plants? So I suppose there's a broader question about regulation and whether that helps or hinders the whole benefits the status quo. Well, my experience of eating insects in China is that if I would be looking on your label, it would be the word crunch. <laughs> <laughs> but since, as, as you say, they're going to come under the domain of the novel foods regulation, European fish are anywhere near deciding how they should be done. Um, when it comes to forecasting the future of food, my reason, I haven't a clue. When I was a young man, I used to think we could foretell the future. The older I get, the more convinced I become that we can't go to the future, inspect what's happening, and come back and tell people what's going to happen. Um, but I wanted to pick up on the point made by somebody towards that form of room about education and saying isn't the whole answer to food problems to improve consumer education. And I'm extremely cautious about that. Of course, people are entitled to know what's a healthy diet and what's in their food. But the idea that somehow we'll give consumers the information and then if they eat crap it's their own fault is something I find very uncomfortable. I'm very uncomfortable about. And that's what I call blaming the victim. I mean, let's keep this in proportion. Nestle's, Nestle in Europe, their advertising budget annually exceeds the whole budget of the World Health And Nestle's budget for advertising Nescafe in the UK exceeds the budget that the Department of Health had for nutritional education. So just giving people, consumers information and saying it's over to you, you must decide, completely misunderstands and ignores the extent to which the food industry and the food retailers are very, very busy trying to get people to buy and consume profitable products 
which is typically full of fats and sugars and, 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 rather than fresh fruit and veg, which after all is extremely healthy but not particularly broth. Fantastic, and that's the best opportunity to I was going to talk about the head of change because yeah. I think that picks up very nicely what actually said. Um, controversially, because I, I do promote lovely meat waste, um, I do actually echo your views. Um, telling people what to do, it does, you know, it makes them feel like, yeah, but what is everyone else doing? And I completely agree that consumers are only part of, um, part of really the solution. However, I think that if there's only one thing that I've learned in six years of talking to individuals about how they can reduce their food waste, is that when we make changes, it's when we do it in a positive way, in celebration, and in a real sense that we're actually doing it with others. And, and that's actually where you know things around redu reduction of meat consumption um, and reducing food waste, it's all the same. It's actually the solution can be positive. Um, and the solution, I think, should be put together with what we then can do to call on others to make changes, to be aware of some of these issues. So for example, um, when it comes to reducing our meat consumption, well, it's the fact that actually pulses are a fantastic addition to your diet. And unlike processed meats, they actually reduce chances of um, intestinal issues such as colon cancer. Um, so it's actually you know, giving people the information, but also encouraging them to actually share meals with others, um, creating places where people can try alternatives. Um, I think uh, Real Junk Food Project is a fantastic example. You go there, um, the food is made from surplus, people are so kind and wonderful to one another, you, meet, you make new friends, there is a meat option, there's also vegetarian, pulse-based options. And then we're celebrating as a community some of those solutions. And I think that's where real change comes. And when we come together, we can also then talk about some of these issues and find ways to actually protect our communities against these really insidious ways that we're being told how to be unsustainable as consumers. Yeah. Okay, uh, there's so much more to discuss, but we've run out of time. Uh, I think I've, I've learned so much about internet sets. I think also the recognition that actually many of we feel that we don't have enough proteins and that insects would require a switch to an alternative source of food to replace it, could provide a very sensible alternative to some of the most wasteful ways we do generate the protein that people think we need more of. But I think Eric's points about the, the real solutions to our food crises, both malnourishment in developing countries and overnourishment in the developed world, are not about technologies called switching foodstuffs, they're about socioeconomic and political problems we're all too depressingly familiar with. So on that chat, <laughs> Uh, I'd like to thank our um, distinguished panel, who've been fantastic. Um, I'd also like to thank the LES and Screw and Brian Fridge, who organised the event, and the staff at Silo and to Silo for having us, um, who are busily preparing the canapes, which I know you want to enjoy. Before you do enjoy them, though, bear in mind if you do have a shellfish allergy, or in this gentleman's case, a known bug allergy, you might want to avoid tasting insect ones. Uh, and I hope the guys giving them out know what's in what, but just ask them if you've got any um, negative liquid. Uh, but mainly thank you to all of you for coming, it's been really interesting.